All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together as your people, as your church, and to experience uh, your blessing and your grace in community, Lord. We thank you for that. We pray that uh, you would bless this sermon, Lord, that we would uh, learn from your word and um, learn your wisdom for life, Lord. And we thank you for your grace and amen. All right, so we are continuing our series called How to Lead Your Heart. We are doing part two of what we started last week, uh, Understanding Emotions. Um, so as you know, this is a series where I'm attempting to make a foundationally comprehensive training course on how to lead your heart. Um, and how I define heart for the purposes of this series is your heart is the part of you, the part of your being that has beliefs, desires, intentions, and emotions. All those things, beliefs, desires, intentions, and emotions are things we should be leading and directing. We shouldn't be letting them direct and lead us, we should lead and direct them. So um, this series exists to teach us how to do that. Um, so there's five habits that I think if a person has, they will learn to be able to direct and lead their heart. Uh, the first habit we looked at is having an attitude of responsibility and intentionality when it comes to leading your heart. And the second one, the one we're focusing on at this point in the series, is uh, you need to be in the habit of discerning and judging what's in your heart. So you have to know, you know what thoughts, desires, intentions, emotions do you actually have, and are they good or are they bad? Are are they helpful or are they unhelpful? You need to be able to be aware of that and to discern that. Um, that's part of being able to lead your heart. So in this part of habit two, we're talking about understanding emotions uh, biblically. I think that'll give us, that'll help lay the ground to have more discernment and to be able to judge what's in our hearts. Um, so last week, we talked about fear and anger. We talked about what causes them uh, and how they can be good and how they can be bad. Uh, today, I have a rather long outline, but we're going to get through it in an um, acceptable amount of time. I won't go over. Uh, but we only have time to talk about one thing today, and that's going to be shame. We're going to talk about shame today. Shame is it's an emotion that all humans have. And um, we're going to talk about what causes it, how it can be good, and how it can be bad. So this is not a comprehensive treatise on shame. If I was going to do that, it would have to be a series. Uh, and it could probably end up being a long one. You know, <laughs> But yeah, so this is just an overview of shame. This is not a comprehensive treatise. But the first thing we're going to talk about, what causes shame? So shame is a type of emotional pain we experience when we feel like there's a standard that we should have met but that we did not meet. Shame is a type of emotional pain we experience when we feel like there's a standard that we should have met, but that we didn't meet. It could be moral standards, it could be physical beauty standards, it could be social standards, but some type of standard that we feel that we should have met, but didn't. That is what causes shame. And um, I would actually say 
I think that guilt is just a subset of shame. Guilt is shame over not having met a moral standard. So we're, we're also going to talk about guilt a little bit in this series. I mean, in today's sermon. Um, almost everything that I'm going to say about shame could also be applied to guilt. Guilt is a type of shame. So let's talk about how shame can be good. You know, all of our emotions and emotional capacities were designed by God to be good. God made man and woman in his image as emotional beings, and God said it was very good. Um, Sin corrupts that and twists it, but in and of itself, all the emotional capacities we have are good and are meant to be good. And shame can be good. There's three reasons I want to mention specifically of why shame can be good. Number one, shame is the natural, logical response to realizing we've sinned and to recognizing that that sin is bad. It'd be hard as an emotional being to recognize that we've sinned and to really understand how serious it is and not feel some type of emotional pain over it you'd almost have to think something would be wrong. Shame is the natural, logical response to realizing we've sinned and recognizing that that sin is bad. Shame shows that in our hearts we have at least some understanding of how serious sin is. When shame is over sin, anyways. If a person has no shame for their sin, that often reveals a heart problem in not seeing the seriousness of their sin. There's two times that we're going to look at in the book of Jeremiah where God rebukes the leaders of Israel for not feeling shame over their sin. He tells them they should have felt shame over it because they were unrepentant and they didn't think it was serious and they didn't care at all about their sin. They felt no shame. Let's look at Jeremiah 6, 13 through 15. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. No, they were not at all ashamed. They didn't know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Just two chapters later, he says something, God says almost the exact same thing again. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. Talking to the leaders of Israel again. How can you say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others, 
and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So shame has its place biblically. Um, It could be easy to think that all shame is bad. All shame is just, you know, that has no place. But shame has its place. These were the people of God. These were the leaders of God's people. And God told them they should have felt shame because they had sin they weren't repentant of and didn't care about. So if a person has no shame for their sin, that often reveals a heart problem of not seeing the seriousness of their sin. The second way in which shame can be good Um, shame can provide motivation to help fight against your sin. You know, we've all had times where shame has motivated us to want to change something in our lives more than we would otherwise want to change it. Shame is a type of emotional pain. Pain tends to do that. Pain tends to motivate people. Shame is painful and annoying, and that You know, that pain often motivates us to want to change something. So shame can provide motivation. The third way in which shame can be good, uh, shame can point us towards our need for God to redeem us. Shame can help us realize how much we need God to redeem us. So we need to realize that we've broken God's standard in order to realize we need his grace. Like we we don't need grace or forgiveness if we didn't do anything wrong. And if our sin isn't that serious, we probably don't really need that much grace. We probably just need a little churching up. We need to know that we've broken God's standards in order to realize our need for grace. And we need to realize to at least some extent how bad it is that we've broken God's standard. We need to realize to at least some extent how serious it is. Typically in our Christian lives, we're growing in understanding how serious sin is, but we need to at least to some extent understand how serious it is. Realizing these two things together is something we need to know in order to know our need for God's grace. But realizing those two things together will inevitably cause shame. At least at first. The pain we feel from our guilt and shame should make us realize that something needs done about our sin. And the biggest thing that needs done is we need God's forgiveness and empowerment. So shame can be good if it points us towards God's grace, if it points us towards seeking him for grace, for forgiveness and empowerment. 
So those are three ways in which shame can be a good thing. Now we're going to talk about how shame can be a bad thing. And there are plenty of ways to, um, in which shame can become an issue in our lives. The first one is shame becomes an issue when we feel shame over things we shouldn't feel shame about. You know, it's, this happens to everyone like at multiple points in their lives. You might feel shame over neutral things that you shouldn't feel shame over or even over good things that you shouldn't feel shame over. Some people might feel shame, you know, my hair is blonde and not black. I'm terrible looking. I feel ashamed. That's, you know, if your hair color isn't the color you want it to be, that's nothing to be ashamed about. That's shame over a standard that isn't, you know, that important. And honestly, um, if I feel like my hair is the wrong color, not only can I change it, but I'm probably wrong. Lots of other people have blonde hair. It's probably fine. But it's so easy to feel shame over things that aren't even bad. And we tend to as humans because, you know, our, our emotional capacity to feel shame, just like the rest of us, has been corrupted. So you can feel shame over things that you shouldn't feel shame, like neutral things. Things that aren't bad or good, they're neutral, but they're nothing to be ashamed of, but we often feel shame over them anyways. No, I'm not tall enough. I'm five foot 11, but I wish I was six foot so I could be a real basketball player. You shouldn't feel shame about that. If God made you 5'11", you're fine as 5'11". Even if God made you four foot something, you're fine as four foot something. Even worse, sometimes we feel shame over good things, things that are positive. Let's look at uh, Mark 8, verses 38. For whoever, this is um, Jesus speaking, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous, sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father with holy angels." You know, it's a real temptation sometimes due to social pressure in a society that hates Christ to be ashamed of Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's a real issue. That's a real corruption of our emotional capacity for shame. We should not be ashamed of good things, especially not of God or of being part of his people, even though the world might hate us for that. That might be breaking a social standard. Being a Christian who follows God faithfully is going to cause you to break tons of social standards. And you're going to have to be okay with that. You shouldn't feel shame about that. So shame becomes an issue when we feel shame over good things. Sometimes we feel shame over standards that are based on pride. I didn't get an A-plus in every single class. I'm such a loser. 
You know, you, you broke the standard of not getting an A-plus in every class, but that's not an important standard. That's a standard based on pride that you made up for yourself. Another way in which we feel shame sometimes over things we shouldn't feel shamed about is if we have shame or guilt over sins that have been forgiven, confessed, and repented of. Let's look at 1 John verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God cleanses us. We broke his standard, but God cleanses us from that. God makes it right. If after confessing or repenting our sin, if we actually repented, um, sometimes we don't actually repent, we just confess. But that's, that's a whole other problem. Um, but if we still feel ashamed and guilty about it, we need to realize that those feelings are out of line with God's word. We need to realize that Christ met the standard for us and that he purifies us from having not met the standard. Realizing that intellectually is something we need to do, but don't be surprised if realizing that intellectually doesn't cause you to feel different about it immediately. But you do need to at least realize it. That's the start. You need to at least realize intellectually that um, if we still feel guilt and shame over sins that we've actually repented of and confessed and been forgiven for, that you know, those feelings are out of line with God's word. The second way in which shame can become an issue. Shame becomes an issue, shame or guilt. Um, for each of these, you could throw in guilt in there as well. But shame becomes an issue when it becomes generalized. If we feel shame or guilt and it's just vague, it's not... Uh, about something specific, then that's not helpful in any way. Like if you can't point to a specific way in which you've broken God's standard and you just feel shame or guilt in general, then that, you know, that's not the Holy Spirit convicting you. If you feel guilt over something, or if you feel just generalized guilt, that's not the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's just feelings of guilt and shame. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you, it's always going to be about something specific, something tangible, something you can put your finger on. Sometimes we also start to feel shame in a generalized way if we just start to feel shameful about ourselves as persons, like I'm just a dislikable person in general. That can be an easy thing to feel or to think. But as Christians, we have no reason to think that way. I want to, um, you know, there's three good reasons we don't have reason to be generally ashamed of ourselves as Christians. Number one, God doesn't condemn us. Let's look at Romans 8.1. There, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So if we're generally ashamed of ourselves because of sin, because of how much sin we've committed, we need to realize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Second reason we shouldn't feel generally ashamed about ourselves, um, you know, we're made in God's image. I could turn to a verse in Genesis about that, but let's actually turn to James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. James talking about the mouth, the tongue. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. All humans are made in God's image, and if other people malign you, other people call you worthless, you know, they're wrong. James, you know, the Holy Spirit speaking through James here says that's wrong. You're made in God's image. And if other people ridicule you or think that you're worthless or no good, then you need to come back to the, the truth that you're made in God's image, and that's important. And, you know, the third reason we shouldn't be generally ashamed of ourselves is that God is in the process of perfecting us as Christians. Let's look at Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, uh, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is sanctifying each and every one of his people, and God will perfect each and every one of his people. The process won't be finished in this life, but God is perfecting each and every one of his people and making them glorious, making them an awesome reflection of him. So as a Christian, you don't have a reason to just feel generally ashamed of yourself. But shame can also be generalized when we start to identify with our sin instead of identifying as a redeemed, empowered child of God. Like, I'm just a liar. I'm just a porn addict. I'm just an alcoholic. You know, I'm just an angry old grouch. I just get angry at people all the time. It's who I am. It's what I've always done. When we start to identify with our sin more than with our identity as a child of God, you know, that leads to shame becoming generalized, and it also kind of leads to a cycle of, like, more sin. When you sin and you start to identify it, oh, this is just what I do, and then you keep doing it. Shame can become generalized when we start to identify with our sin instead of identifying as a redeemed, empowered child of God. So that's the second way in which shame can become an issue, if it's generalized. The third way in which shame can become an issue, uh, when we let it get in the way of receiving God's love for us, that becomes an issue. You know, shame can tempt us to believe that God doesn't love us or that he's always displeased with us. 
There's no way God could love me with how sinful I am. We might think that, or we might think, you know, God probably doesn't like me because I'm not as competent or gifted as other people. But that's not based on the truth of Scripture. You know, we might not be as competent or as gifted as other people, but everyone was made different. But the idea that God probably doesn't like me because of that, that's not based on the truth of Scripture. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's look at Romans 8.35. I forgot to put it in my notes. Can we look at Romans 8.35? Is ProPresenter working? There we go. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is a rhetorical question. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But I like how he adds nakedness in there. Because nakedness is a general representation of shame. Our shame, our patheticness, our shame in all its depth and detail cannot separate us from the love of God. It's an issue when we let shame get in the way of receiving God's love for us. It has consequences. When we start to not receive God's love for us because of shame, it steals our joy it holds us back from being, having a close relationship with God, and it, it weakens our faith. You know, why should I believe that God's going to answer my prayers if he probably doesn't love me very much because I'm so worthless and so sinful? We can't allow shame to get in the way of receiving God's love for us. That becomes a problem, and that problem has consequences. It's something we're fighting against. So number three, shame becomes an issue when we let it in the way of re- get in the way of receiving God's love for us. And I, I would also just quickly add on, shame can also become an issue when we allow it to get in the way of receiving love from others. Mm-hmm. Like there's other people that love us, and sometimes we get tempted by our shame to just ignore it or deny it or to tell ourselves they don't really love me, they don't really care, how could they? How could they actually care about me? And that becomes a problem. We need to fight against that. So the fourth way in which shame can become an issue. Shame becomes an issue when it points us towards trying, when it points us more towards trying harder than it does towards God's grace, forgiveness, and empowerment. Shame becomes an issue when it points us more towards trying harder than it does towards God's grace, forgiveness, and empowerment. We might say to ourselves, you know, I'm so ashamed I gave into that temptation again. I really need to do better so that God approves of me. We might not say it aloud, but it's very easy to think that and to feel that, to think that in your heart, to believe that in your heart. We've all done it before. 
What we should say instead, what should be our attitude instead of that, is I'm ashamed that I gave in again. But thank God he still loves me and still delights in me as a child of his. Thank God he's patiently sanctifying me and won't give up. It's a a difference in attitude that might seem small, but it makes a huge difference. Our shame should drive us to seek God's grace and to celebrate God's grace, not to ignore it. When we give in to temptation, we feel ashamed. Our ad- we need to make sure that our attitude is thank God that he still loves me and he still delights in me as a child of his and he's patiently sanctifying me and he won't give up. Another thing that's easy, you know, to think internally or to believe in our hearts, an attitude to have that we commonly might have over shame. You know, I'm so ashamed I gave into temptation again. I really need to start trying harder so I can get my act together. But a a more balanced attitude, what our attitude should be instead of that is, I gave into temptation again. I need to make sure I'm putting in effort in my fight against sin, but I also need to make sure that that effort is backed by God's supernatural power, and I need to seek him for that. Now, when I say that shame needs to point us more towards God's grace than it does towards trying harder, it's not that we don't need to try or that we don't need to try hard. You do need to put effort in in your fight against sin, but that effort needs to be backed by supernatural empowerment. If you have all the supernatural empowerment in the world, but you're not using it, it will do you no good. You need to put effort in to fight against your sin. But we can't let our shame just drive us to only thinking about more effort, more effort, more effort, more effort. We need supernaturally empowered effort. Our, sin should, our shame should drive us towards pursuing God's forgiveness and empowerment. And when our shame starts to point us more towards trying harder than it does towards God's grace and empowerment, then that becomes a problem in our lives. That's a problem we're fighting against. That's something we need to fight against if that's happening. The fifth way in which shame and guilt can become an issue uh, in our lives Shame and guilt become a problem when we use them to motivate ourselves or to motivate others. Now, I did say that one of the good things, one of the benefits about shame is that it is motivating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That being said, you need to be very careful that you're not, you know, seeking to use it as a means of motivation. That can be very dangerous. That can turn into a real problem. Yeah, well, it can be manipulation if you're using it towards other people. But you can even use um, guilt and shame to try to motivate yourself. Like, um, you know, years ago, I had a certain sin that I kept struggling with over and over and over, and I would try to make myself feel worse about it. Because I'm like, I need more motivation. I need more motivation. So I would beat myself up over it on purpose because I wanted to feel more shame. 
I wanted to fear more guilt because I wanted to use that to motivate me. And that just led to problems. Like that led to a messed up view of God and it got in the way of receiving his love and his grace and it, it doesn't work well. You shouldn't try that. The biggest reason why you shouldn't use shame or guilt to motivate yourself is because our thoughts should always be in line with God's thoughts. But God doesn't use shame or guilt to motivate us. There's three verses that I want to look at that show that God does not use shame or guilt to motivate us. Let's look at Luke 7, 47. This is Jesus as he's having lunch with one of um, the Pharisees, I believe it is. And there was a woman who comes and, uh, and washes his feet with her hair and with her tears. Um, and Jesus says to the Pharisee who's complaining about it, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And um, kind of what he was, like he didn't use guilt to motivate her. He showed love to her. He was accepting. She was forgiven, and that's what motivated her. He who is forgiven little loves little. God's forgiveness should motivate us. God doesn't just guilt trip people and bash us like, you should have done better, you really need to do better, you really need to get it together. One of the ways God helps us to have motivation is he just loves us. And that should motivate us as Christians. That's something that he expects to motivate us. He who is forgiven little loves little. But, you know, what that implies, he who's forgiven much, he who is loved much, loves much. God motivates us with love, not by guilt tripping us. Let's also look at 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. And let's look at Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead us towards repentance. God motivates his people with love and not with shame and guilt tripping. If God wanted to use shame or guilt for motivation, it would have been very easy to. Jesus would have responded differently to the woman washing his feet. He would have just said, get it together, woman. You're such a loser. How can you be this sinful? For goodness sake. Like, Jesus did not respond that way. Jesus never responded that way. Like throughout the scriptures. God doesn't use guilt and shame to motivate his people. Sometimes we need to feel shame, like when, you know, God was speaking in Jeremiah about how it was a problem, how the leaders of Israel didn't feel shame, but that's because they didn't acknowledge the seriousness of their sin. We still need to acknowledge the seriousness of our sin, but God doesn't use guilt or shame to motivate his people. The second thing I want to say about this... Um, if you try to motivate others using guilt or shame, you need to question whether or not you're manipulating people. 
and you probably are, if you use guilt or shame to motivate others. You know, manipulation can happen a number of ways, but if you're trying to force someone to do something that they don't actually want to do, um, in general, that's what manipulation is. And when we try to motivate people through guilt and shame, usually we're trying to manipulate people. And that's a problem. Love doesn't manipulate people. The sixth way in which shame can become an issue. Shame becomes an issue when we mistake it for humility or use it as a replacement for humility. Shame becomes an issue when we mistake it for humility or use it as a replacement for humility. So shame is not humility. Humility has to do, biblical humility has to do with thinking of yourself accurately and with not having your heart more focused on yourself than it should be. But shame can often be much closer to pride than it is towards humility. Let's look at Luke 16, verse 3. This is the parable of the unrighteous steward, the unrighteous manager, the shrewd manager. So the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking my management from me, since he's about to fire me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So he's saying, you know, I, I won't have any money. I'm about to be unemployed, and I'll need help, but I'm ashamed to accept help. Does that sound like pride or humility? That sounds like pride. Shame often is much closer to pride than it is to humility, but it's, it's very common um, in American culture to think of shame and humility as very close to each other, or as close to being the same thing. But shame is not humility. Shame might even be caused by pride. A way in which shame can be caused by pride um, you know, with the example of being ashamed that you didn't get A pluses in absolutely every single class you ever took, you know, sometimes we have shame because we there's a standard we feel like we met that we shouldn't have, that we didn't meet, but that standard is just based on pride. It's just unrealistic. I should always be perfect and never make mistakes. Good luck with that. And yet we often um, try to fight pride by trying to feel ashamed or by reminding ourselves of our shame. We often think of shame as the opposite of pride, but it's not. Because pride has more to do with desire than it does, uh, you know, belief about yourself. If you would like to hear more about that, I have a five-part series on pride and humility on our website. All right, the seventh way shame can become an issue. Shame becomes an issue when we use it as a replacement for repentance. 
And you can say that about guilt. Guilt becomes an issue when we use it as a replacement for repentance. Guilt and shame and remorse over your sin are not the same thing as repentance. You can have plenty of guilt and shame and not actually repent or have any intention of repenting. If you think that you've repented just because you feel bad and have shame and guilt, then you need then that shows that we don't really understand what repentance is. The best example of this is Judas. Let's look at Matthew 27, 3 and 5. When Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He felt guilt. He felt shame. He felt remorse. You know, that's good. He should. That's reasonable. He realized he sinned. He actually did sin, and he realized that it was serious. It was serious. So he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? Take care of it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hung himself. He didn't actually repent. He felt guilt and shame, and he did not respond to it with repentance. Repentance is submitting to God and choosing, making him Lord of your life. But if he would have repented, he would have sought God's forgiveness and sought to do whatever God wanted him to do. He did not repent. Responding to his guilt and shame by hating himself was not repentance. We need to realize that guilt and shame aren't repentance. We need actual repentance. I would say that having actual repentance is more important than having remorse. It's probably pretty hard to have repentance without having remorse. But if you had to choose between the two, pick repentance. Sometimes we have no intention of actually repenting, and we tell ourselves, well, at least I feel bad about it. Or I'm I'm not doing that bad. Like, I feel bad about my sin, and that means I'm in a good place in my heart. If you have no intention of repenting, you are not in a good place in your heart no matter how bad you feel about it. Judas was not in a good place, and he felt plenty bad about it. So shame and guilt become an issue when we use them as a replacement for repentance. They can't replace repentance. Last thing, last way shame can become an issue. Shame becomes an issue when we see it as a punishment that we're supposed to suffer through because we deserve it. We do deserve it. We deserve much worse than we could imagine. But shame is still an issue when we see it as a punishment we're supposed to suffer through because we deserve it. So sometimes when we sin, we feel like we need to beat ourselves up over it. We feel like that's the righteous thing to do, right? But when we think that, 
That's based on thinking that we need to make ourselves suffer for our sin. And that's anti-gospel thinking. That's anti-gospel thinking. Christ did all the suffering for our sin that's necessary. And if we think we need to suffer for our sin, then we don't fully believe that Christ really suffered sufficiently for it. Christ suffered sufficiently for it, but if we think that we need to beat ourselves up, we need to feel the pain because we deserve it, then deep down we don't holistically believe that. It's very easy to, you know, sin or give in to temptation and feel like, well, I need to feel bad about it. I need to beat myself up over it. I need to suffer through this because I deserve it. We need to be very watchful, very careful about what we actually think in that, what we believe in our hearts. It can be easy to not realize that that's what we really believe in our hearts, is that I need to suffer for my sin because I deserve it. But that's anti-gospel thinking. We need to watch out for that. That's doubting the gospel. And that's, in a real, some sense, more serious than the sin itself is. You don't need to suffer for your sins. Christ did that. What we need to do is repent. Christ commands us to repent. He doesn't command us to suffer for our sins. He did that. But those are the eight ways uh, that I felt were worth mentioning on how shame and guilt can become an issue in our lives. Our capacity to feel shame is good. God created it, and it's good, and it has its usefulness, and it has its place, but it can get twisted, and it can get out of hand, and we need to be watchful about that. Um, let's move on to the communion meditation. Christ saves us from shame. Let's look at Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 7. This is a prophecy about Jesus, and Jesus was in the temple. When he went into the temple as he was starting his ministry, he read it and said it was about him. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up uh, the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. And you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and their glory in their glory shall you boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. 
Shame is a problem that we can't overcome on our own. We have no hope. We have no means. We've broken God's law, and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, we have no hope of overcoming our shame. Naturally, we would just have shame forever because we've broken God's law, and we keep breaking God's law. But Christ came to change that. In Christ, instead of shame, we can have blessing. Christ allows us to trade in our shame and our guilt for his blessing. He does that. He takes away the shame of our sins by paying for them. He takes away the shame of our imperfections by sanctifying us. And one day we'll be perfectly and permanently without shame when he has finished sanctifying us when we see him in glory. For the Christian, shame can never be permanent. But without Christ, our shame would be permanent and there would be nothing we could do about it. So let us thank Christ as we come to the table.